You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Forgive me. You know how I hate to do this to you. I hate to do this to myself, but sometimes it has to be done. Ladies and gentlemen, NBs and A genders, the President of the United States. As your President, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. That was Donald Trump speaking in July of 2016 at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Trump managed to force LGBTQ out of his vile, lying mouth and promised to protect LGBTQs from hatred and oppression. Log cabin quizlings and other homo cons rejoiced. They missed the fine print. They claimed that Trump would be better for American queers than Hillary Clinton. But only an idiot would have believed him. And of course, if you look up idiot in the dictionary, there's a picture of a log cabin Republican. And an idiot appears to have written the headline at CNN. Trump at RNC. I will protect LGBTQ citizens. Yeah, no. As Barney Frank pointed out at the time, Trump only promised to protect LGBTQ people from foreign oppression. It's not foreigners firing people here in America, Frank told journalist Mike Signorelli. It's not foreigners refusing to serve LGBT people. Trump's comments were very carefully worded. The great majority of problems LGBT people have faced, Frank continued, violence against transgender people, discrimination, come from good old homegrown Americans. So this fraudulent promise that he's going to protect us from foreigners I hope people see through it. The overwhelming majority of LGBTQs did see through it. Trump got 14% of the queer vote, a smaller share, amazingly enough, than Trump got from people of color. But Trump won the election, our national calamity, and from the minute that motherfucker was sworn in, he began attacking LGBTQ Americans. His Justice Department has argued that anti-gay discrimination is legal, filing a friend of the court brief claiming that the Federal Civil Rights Act does not protect gay and bisexual workers. Trump fired all the members of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS, and he has overseen the creation of a, quote, religious liberty task force also at the Justice Department. Religious liberty, of course, being code for the right to discriminate against LGBT people. And he's appointed rabidly anti-LGBTQ bigots at every level of the federal government, starting with rabidly anti-gay Mike Pence and on down. And he's packed the courts, including the Supreme Court, with anti-LGBTQ jurists. And this weekend, the New York Times broke the story that the Trump administration is attacking, and not for the first time, transgender Americans. That would be the T in LGBTQ. He has, of course, already tried to throw trans people out of the military, attacked the rights of trans students, and scrapped an Obama administration policy that said trans people were protected from discrimination under existing civil rights laws. But news of the biggest attack yet on the LGBT community broke this weekend. And here to discuss it with me is Parker Malloy, prolific journalist, formidable tweeter, and a trans woman herself. Hey, Parker, what now? What fresh hell is this? Oh, I mean, this is this is the freshest hell. 
um, so far, you know, so I, so I woke up yesterday, it was, it was, or woke up the other day and it was my anniversary, my first anniversary. And, uh, you know, always good to wake up on your anniversary and look at your phone and read a headline that says that, uh, the president is trying to define, define you out of existence. So <laughs> explain that for people. Yeah. So under existing federal non-discrimination laws, there, there are protected classes of people. Uh, like people are protected on the basis of religion, race, sex, country of origin. Like there, there are all these other, all these protected classes built in there. And so the question that's been popping up for a long time has been whether gender identity and sexual orientation fall under sex-based discrimination protections. And a lot of courts have found that yes, they, you know, those, those do because a lot of them are based on, uh, sex-based stereotypes mm-hmm. and the Trump administration in coming out with their, with their memo, their policy there, or if they do release it, because it is just a draft at the moment would have, would say that the government's position is that it does not. And then to go, then to go even further, uh, specifying that trans people are in the government's definition, always going to be the gender they were assigned at birth, always going to be the sex they were assigned at birth. And that cannot change. So, so a person wouldn't be able to legally change their gender anymore. After you transition, you go to the DMV, you get from M to W on your driver's license, on your passport, yeah. your legal documents, and you're recognized by the, by the authorities as the gender yeah. that you are. And that would exactly. be impossible if this policy is adopted. Right. I mean, on a state level, you know, I, I, I guess that would be up to the individual states. But on a federal level, so, you, you know, one thing that I keep thinking about is passports. Since t- 2010, trans people have been able to update their passport uh, pretty easily, thanks to a policy put in place by um, Hillary Clinton, who, remember, everyone during the campaign was like, is she really OK about LGBT rights? You know, I'm sure glad we got this instead. Uh, well, yeah, I, I want to get in a time machine and go, well, not in a time machine. They're still rattling around. I want to go just yeah. not throttle physically, just rhetorically throttle. Yeah. Uh, those yeah, queers who, you're going to get you're going to lumped into one of those like the mob, the left mob. Right. Yeah. But those but, queers who were running around saying because Hillary Clinton uh, didn't come around on marriage quickly enough, Trump was the better potential president yeah. for LGBTQ Americans, even though he opposed marriage equality and it already produced a list of people who'd appoint to the Supreme Court who were opponents to marriage equality. Yeah. Uh, the it, mind it, boggles. It's, it's obnoxious. But, but so, so basically this, this, uh, this policy, if it were to go into place, would, would say that trans people can't ever under any circumstances update their gender, their sex from, from what it was listed on their original birth certificate. They do specify original birth certificates just to make sure like even in states where you can update it, like Illinois, where I live, mm-hmm. you know, I can update my birth certificate. And, and some people might say, okay, so what's the problem with this? Why does this matter? Is this just about your, about feeling good, your feelings, trans people, facts, feelings, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, here's, here's the issue. Let's say I go out to a bar and I get carded. The question is, do I have to out myself as trans to a bartender? <laughs> um, and endanger yourself potentially because transgender people are often met with physical violence when, when they, they're forced out themselves. And also defining it this way also could, you know, pave the way for, you know, businesses to just be able to straight up turn trans people away. Be like, no, we don't, we don't want your, your kind in here. And that's, that's scary in itself. And, you know, just this, just this morning I was looking on, uh, 
there, there was a tweet from Fox News saying that a man was denied service at a restaurant because he was wearing a Trump shirt. I don't know whether that actually even happened, but they're outraged about one guy. Whereas, you know, the Trump administration might soon be, you know, making this policy that would label 1.4 million of us, you know, as as free to kick out of restaurants. And this is the same Trump administration that already went to court and argued that businesses should have the right to discriminate against same-sex couples in the Masterpiece Cake Shop dispute. And successfully so, they argued that in front of the Supreme Court. So it's fine to discriminate against gay couples, against transgender Americans, not fine to discriminate against one individual asshole in a MAGA hat. Um, As I I read the New York Times story, uh, which broke the news on uh, Sunday night, and it's in Monday's paper. Everybody who didn't see it should get online and go read it. It's even more pernicious than just you're not allowed to change your Oh, yeah. uh, documents, it, it posits that or, or it suggests or it's going to enact a policy if adopted that if there's a dispute about someone's gender, that a genetic test is the deciding yes. factor. Which is, it's, you know, that's, that's intrusive. And, you know, anyone who's con- concerned about privacy should, should worry about that. When really, me being trans affects your life in no way. And, you know, if, if you or anyone else is like, but I don't understand trans people. That's fine. You know, it's like I, I, I don't need I don't need people to to understand, you know, what it's like to be me because it took it's take it took me more than two decades to understand what it's like to be me. You know, I, I don't need that. I just need need people to understand that trans people are human beings and we don't need to we don't need to be treated like weird fugitives in some sort of dystopian novel with genetic testing and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Being you was a journey and a process for you to discover. Respecting you, allowing you to be you is asking nothing of another human being. And, you know, this genetic testing thing, what it essentially argues is there's no such thing as a trans person. Just look at the genetic testing. That's who someone is. And so it's erasing trans people. And it just, it, it made me think as I was reading the article about how they've dragged out old anti-gay stereotypes that were predators that would lurk in public restrooms to prey on children. And then they redirected those at trans women primarily, that trans mm-hmm. women want to yeah. get into the bathroom. I'll, you know, we need these bathroom laws, which seem to be running out of steam, the bathroom laws. But the argument was trans women are predators preying on children. They were just like rehashing the old argument that they used against gay people while it worked. And this argument seems to be kind of a mid-90s anti-gay argument. There's no such thing as a gay person was the argument in the mid-90s, that we could all be ex-gay, that we're just choosing to be Mm -hmm. gay, and there's no such thing as gay. Everyone's straight. Some of us are just putting dicks in our mouths for laughs. And the argument here is there's no such thing as a trans person. Right. Well, and the irony in the fact that these are the same people, they'll say, we need to ban trans people from bathrooms to protect women and girls. You can never be too careful. You know, there are also the same people who go gun laws. Not sure if you know this, but criminals don't follow the law. Gun <laughs> deaths are tragic, but it's the price of freedom. You know, it's the, the same argument where it's either that we need to be stopped. And if this was honestly, you know, because some, some people will then pivot to saying, well, this is no, this isn't about actual trans people. This is about men pretending to be trans. Then why have this stuff about genetics and original birth certificate? You know, it's like if if someone has has undergone medical treatment, uh, you can you can be pretty sure that they're not just like doing it just to hang out in women's restrooms, which I still don't know what they think happens in there. But it's a lot less exciting than than they make it out to be. So uh, quickly, because we're almost out of time. Where can people go to learn more about this and what can people do about it? 
to learn more about this, I think that, you know, there, there are, some, there are groups like uh, the ACLU uh, just put out something that was, that, that talked about, you know, the actual implications of something like this. I would recommend hopping over to their Twitter feed or their website. But as, as for what people can do, really, it's support politicians who support the Equality Act. If, if the Trump administration wants to wipe out these protections for trans people, then it's important to get those protections put back in explicitly. So we don't have to keep doing this thing where Obama changes, you know, Obama interprets the law one way and then Trump changes it back. And the next president one way and then changes it back or leaving it up to the Trumpified Supreme Court to decide. So I, I think that that's important. So vote for politicians who support the Equality Act. And right now that happens to be Democrats. I mean, there are 198 sponsors of, of that bill. Only two of them are Republicans. And one of them is retiring at the end of this term. I get that people want to say, well, it's possible that Republicans are coming around on this, but they're not there yet. And it's, it's clear there is a difference between the parties. And far from perfect, Democrats are the ones who, you know, are better on this issue. Parker Malloy, follow her on Twitter if you want to follow this issue or other issues impacting the trans community. Don't just tweet and write about queer issues. You tweet and write about all sorts of things. And I learn a lot following you on Twitter. Follow her on Twitter at Parker Malloy. Hey, Parker, thank you so much for jumping on the phone this morning. And I'm really sorry about this. And fuck Trump. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Dan. All right. Again, go to The New York Times, read the story that came out yesterday, yesterday's paper about this and go to the ACLU to read what you can do about it. And please go follow Parker at Parker Malloy. Coming up today on both the micro and magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast, the sexiest voice in Texas. And no, I am not talking about Beto. And on the magnum Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, Dr. Justin Lay Miller is back to talk with us about kinks, how we get them, what they mean, and whether it is possible to rid yourself of a kink that troubles you. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm an almost 30-year-old listener, and I was calling because I was on a mass transit system last week, and I had a man ask me for directions, and as I was answering him, I noticed he had a huge erection. And so I wasn't sure what to do or who to call, and I didn't get service in the tunnels on the train, so I was like, what do I do? And my understanding of what to do in such a situation is that like people who do that basically do it to like see your reaction. So I was, I guess the best I can do (laughs) is uh, deny him the satisfaction of my reaction. So I acted like I didn't see it, that he was just like an annoyance to me, but not necessarily someone who was like skeeting me out. So I ended up, you know, telling the station manager about what happened and giving them a description and all of that to hopefully stop him from doing that to someone else, but who knows. But basically my question is if someone like harasses you in that way where um, they're masturbating at you or they have an erection and it's clear that they like want you to notice, like what's the best way to like deter them from to like stop them from getting the reaction that they're hoping for. Another case where someone violates a social norm and counts on the other person, not wanting to be confrontational, not wanting to, blow it up, not wanting in some cases to make the person who's violating the social norm or being the asshole feel bad. Somebody violates your boundaries and you sit there going, okay, well, if I confront them about how they're violating my boundaries, they may have a a bad reaction. Maybe I feel threatened or they just may feel guilty or terrible. And even as they're threatening me in this creepy way, I don't want to humiliate or embarrass them. Yeah, we got to stop playing that game. 
So here's what you do, I think, in that situation. You whip out your phone and you film them. You film their crotch, you film their face, and you say, I am going to upload this and ruin you. Phones have changed the way people perceive police brutality in this country because dumb fucking white people who have pleasant interactions with cops can no longer be in denial about the way cops interact with people of color regularly. Those same phones can shift the power balance in a situation like that. They can create accountability. They can create the threat of accountability. They can also create the reality of accountability. Somebody flashes you their dick or they masturbate in your direction. There's no plausible deniability there. They're doing what they're doing. Somebody who points their erection at you in gym shorts so it's really obvious and then you're the pervert, if you notice, they're playing a very manipulative game. Pull out your phone, film them, and call them on the game they're playing. What are you doing waving your boner around in my fucking face, asshole? And then put it on Twitter and let Twitter do the rest. Hi, Dan. I'm calling all the way from England because I really need your advice on moving from a don't-ask-don't-tell style of open relationship to a more informed and honest one. As a bit of background, uh, my primary partner and I have over the past year or so settled into an amazing triad relationship with a really great guy. The problem we're having is that we're both quite insecure and anxious people. So when we first realized that we were falling for him, we told him that we don't want to know about other people he might be seeing, as long as we trust each other to stay safe and all that kind of thing. But as the relationship progresses, however, I'm starting to worry that this model of don't ask, don't tell could cause problems later. We don't want him to feel he has to lie about what he's up to to keep us happy. And plus, if he's seeing someone more seriously, we should probably know if we need to manage our expectations of how much time and affection he can give us. So not only am I not totally sure how to bring it up, but more importantly, I'm not sure what I want to know or what we can handle. We want him to be free to do what he wants and enjoy life, and us being possessive won't help. We have each other as primary partners, and we want him to be happy, which might mean him having someone else too. But still, the idea of him being with other people squicks us out and makes us jealous. So, if we want to be more informed and have more honesty to protect ourselves for the future, how do we do this without making ourselves feel worse in the present? What details do we actually need to know? Every time he has a new date, their names, only if it's getting serious, the details of his feelings, I, I really don't know. Also, do you think it would help us to future-proof our feelings if the two of us were to find some other dates as well? We're busy people and generally happy as we are, but it might help reduce our dependence and clinginess and jealousy with our third. Polly doesn't always mean open. There are people out there in polyamorous relationships who have multiple partners, but that's it. It's a closed triad or a closed quad, and it's understood and it's explicit, and it's a commitment that they've made. And you have a right, if this is what you require for your comfort, for your sense of sexual and emotional safety, to ask for what you want and to seek what you want. And if the ideal scenario for you is a triad where your third is only with you two, you can ask that. You may have to give something to get that. Think of it as a triumvirate, not hierarchical, not the primary partners and then that guy, but three partners. And so you may have to cede some ground to get what you want, to get the kind of commitment you want to provide you with the emotional security that you desire. If he can't give that to you, he might not be the right partner or third for you. But you can ask that of him now. And I think you can just sit with the contradictions. You can say, on the one hand, you know, he, this is my primary partner and we feel that you have a right to a primary partner too, but we're so into you and so in love with you that... We just want it to be us for now. 
And you have no way of knowing how long for now is. For now with him might be a couple of years and then you part ways and you stick the dismount and you remain in each other's lives. And it was a successful short-term triad, close triad. And now it is a friendship and you move on to a new partner perhaps, or you may wind up becoming one of those long-term committed, closed poly triads and they are out there. And if that's the kind of relationship that you'd be most comfortable with, ask for that relationship. What's scary when you ask somebody for what you want is it may not be what they want, but if it's not what they want, then they're not right for you. And you can part as friends and seek out your ideal third. Hi, Dan. I am a mid-20s female from the Pacific Northwest. I did this guy for about five months, and it had its ups and downs. We actually live across the street from each other, so... uh one of our bigger problems in the relationship was that he just never asked me to do anything. He would come over and we would hang out and end up doing something, but it was always my idea. And I had expressed this need to him a few times that I wanted him to make an effort to ask me on a date, even if it was just something simple like going to the bar down the street and kind of promised it a few times. And it never happened, and we ended up having a huge talk last night that ended up in us ending things. But he explained to me that the reason he couldn't ask me on a date was because his brain was not wired that way, that he was physically incapable of doing that, and that he'd never done that before. He also explained to me previous in the relationship that he had ADHD. I'm just wondering if this is like an actual real thing at all or what? Because I've never heard of this before. And I'm just trying to get more information as to whether this is actually legit. Sorry about that noise in the background. Everybody else, I think a train was going by as our caller was walking down the street. All right, caller, another simple and perhaps unsatisfactory answer. Why don't you ask him out? Have you tried that? You've told him that you would like him to ask you out, to go out, do some other stuff with you instead of just popping over to your apartment when he wants to have sex. Okay, well, you have the power to make running around and doing some things a condition of hooking up in the future. You also have the power to pick up your phone and send him a text and say, hey, why don't you meet me at this place at this time? And we can hang out and see how he reacts. If he shows up Yahtzee, if he doesn't show up, if he's not interested in meeting you out in public for whatever reason, then you can date one of the other 4 billion men on the planet. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a uh, straight white male, Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm 39 years old. The question I have for you today is more of a sociological question, um, something I'm just wondering, uh, a situation you've heard of, of. When I was growing up, one in the 80s and 90s, the uh, statistic I heard quite a bit of is the thing about, you know, uh, one in two couples that are married will get divorced. Now, I could be wrong, but to me, uh, that statistic goes back to a time when uh, couples were essentially just getting married to, for lack of a better term, get permission to have sex. And, of course, 
this means that they down the line usually would not uh, get to know each other very well in you know key areas, and they would become incompatible in those areas, and end up getting divorced. Now, of course, today that's not much of an issue because not only are we more sexually liberated society, but a lot more of the younger generations, the last 20 or so years, do take the time to get to know each other before they decide they want to get married. Now, of course, as you know, some years back, there was the hard-won case for gays getting uh, the same rights for marriage, which I'm very happy that they are. So my question is, uh, have you heard of any situations in which gay couples since then have actually gotten divorced? I ask that because marriage shares the proverbial two-way street with divorce, and I'm sure that obviously they have the same rights to get divorced as anyone else, then if they uh, if they encounter such incompatibility, hopefully that they stop thinking that oh we we get we can get married now so we should. I'm just wondering if you've heard of any cases where couples have chosen to get divorced since the time that they were legally able to get married. That 50% of all marriages fail, the 50% divorce rate stat that rattles around out there is much in dispute. There's some research that indicates that it never hit 50%, that at its highest it was 41 to 45-ish percent, and the divorce rate has been falling, actually, over the last few decades because people are marrying later or marrying not at all. That doesn't mean our relationships are necessarily more stable. People now cohabitate, move in together. That used to be hugely controversial. I can remember when I was a small child the arguments that the adults in the room used to have about people who weren't married moving in with each other, and you rarely hear that anymore. It's not controversial. So a lot of relationships that a couple of generations ago would have been marriages that then failed are now relationships that were cohabitations that quote unquote failed. Maybe they were successful short-term relationships and the people in them survived, found new partners, and then perhaps married those partners a little bit later in life. That's not your question though. Do I know of any cases where happy same-sex couples have wound up getting divorced? Yes. Same-sex couples get divorced. It does seem that a lot of the same-sex couples, at least in the initial wave of marriages entered into by same-sex couples as it became legal to do so, were more stable. So a lot of that first wave of same-sex couples marrying were long-term established same-sex couples that had already withstood the test of time. There's an interesting study out of the Netherlands where they were tracking same-sex couples since 2005, which is when Holland got marriage equality a decade before we did. And they found of the 580 lesbian couples who married in 2005, 30% were divorced 10 years later, compared to 18% for heterosexual couples who married that year, and 15% for gay male couples that married in 2005 in the Netherlands. I think that study is really interesting, and now I'm going to saddle up my hobby horse. Yeah, lesbian couples most likely to divorce. Straight couples a little less likely to divorce. Gay male couples least likely to divorce. Lesbian couples most likely to be monogamous. Straight couples a little less likely to be monogamous. Gay male couples least likely to be monogamous. Correlation? Don't know. Causation? Don't know. A little bit of openness? Maybe a little non-monogamy stabilizes relationships instead of destabilizing them, which is the predominant view. Obviously, more studies are needed. But yeah, same-sex couples aren't magic. Same-sex couples also divorce. I have some friends who divorced. And as we've seen... A lot of young queer people are marrying early, sometimes out of a defensive crouch. Their families or their faiths 
told them that their love wasn't real and getting married is this quick and easy and foolish way to prove to your mom or your dad or your imaginary sky friends that your love is real. My love is so real. It's so real that we, you know, we met three months ago and we're only 22. We're already getting married. Yeah, please don't do that. Young queers, don't marry young and foolishly. Doesn't work out for straight couples when they do it. It's not going to work out for us when we do it either. Hey, what's going on, Dan? I'm calling with a question kind of about intimacy, I guess. I'm straight male living in Texas, and I don't really like kissing. And it's been a recurrent issue with the women that I'm with because I just neglect it because I forget because it doesn't really mean enough to me, so I'm not giving them enough kisses. And it's a whole thing. And it's not that I have, like, a phobia of it or fear. It's just, I don't know. I just kind of forget because it doesn't mean anything to me. And uh, I guess so. The question is: Is there any way to make me like kissing more? Is that? I mean, fuck, man. Is there like a book I can read or YouTube videos I can watch or some weird shit that you know about that I don't? I don't know. It's kind of a problem because I'm pretty dominant, and uh, I know I need to show more affection, and I just kind of forget because it's not that into it. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts you got? I appreciate. Well, after listening to your call, listening to your sexy fucking Texan voice, Nancy and all the women on the text heavy at rescue stuff are ready to fly down to Texas and help you practice. You just got to be honest with the women that you date. That kissing isn't something you hate, but it's not something that you particularly think of or particularly enjoy, and it's not something you've ever really initiated. So what you need to do is tell the women that you date that they're the kissing tops. That if there are going to be kisses, it's going to be because they initiated and you are happy to make out with them, to to meet that need for them, to provide them with all the kisses they require and maybe a little bit of tongue action. But it just never occurs to you to, to start, to lean in, to plant one on them. But you're there. You're there for them whenever they want to plant one on you. But Nancy again and the rest of the ladies on the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, happy to help you out, happy to come down to Texas, help you practice on one condition. You're voting for Beto O'Rourke. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old heterosexual female in Canada, and I'm calling with possibly the most ununique problem. I am super in love with my boyfriend. We live together. We have a beautiful place. We have a beautiful life, and I don't ever want him to not be a part of my life. But lately, I have been really missing that new relationship energy feeling and I have some crushes and I want to pursue them but he is just not budging on opening up the relationship so I guess I know what you're going to say that it's just the price of admission and all of that but if you have any advice for a young person who's just really in love and doesn't want to lose their partner but who also isn't sure if monogamy is going to be a good fit long term and where to go once we have that knowledge about ourselves it would be really helpful i feel really alone with this right now so any advice you could give would be awesome sorry nre you don't get to have that in the context of a committed long-term relationship absent a traumatic brain injury that's just something that you have to sacrifice on the altar of the kind of commitment and the kind of relationship that you want to have Literally, for the both of you, NRE, going without for the rest of your lives, presumably, is the price of admission that you have to pay. You can't fake it. 
You could go out and pretend that you don't know each other and meet in a bar and maybe you could soak up just a tiny little bit of the NRE, not because you're generating it for each other, but in the eyes of other people around you, these two people in this bar or this club who didn't know each other, didn't arrive together, are now making out on the dance floor and you look like people who went from zero to 60 in a moment and maybe you can goose a little bit of that NRE into your life through that kind of role play. But it'll be the aspartame, the carob, the dildo of NRE, and not the real thing. Hi, Dan. I am a 39-year-old gay man. I am also HIV positive. And I have recently discovered that I like to be flogged. And I was at a pansexual, mixed-gendered BDSM party recently. A straight man flogged me. He uh what went at it pretty hard. He bruised my back pretty bad, which I was really, really into. I did not disclose my HIV positive status to the, to to him. I didn't think that it was necessary because we were not having sex. Later on, I'm not sure how he found out, but he learned of my HIV positive status and he got really, really upset. Uh, it spread around to the community, and now a lot of these people have labeled me an unsafe partner. Um, he believes that I should buy him new floggers because he bruised me. He doesn't know, you know, if he's going to infect somebody else. And I, I'm sure that that's not even possible. But that's what my question is, is that what, what is the likelihood of me getting flogged and possibly drawing blood, getting it onto the flogger, and then the top moving on to another person, flogging them and infecting them? Is that even a thing or is that even possible? Am I wrong? Should I be disclosing my status to anybody that I've seen with? That is not a thing. That is not possible. Presumably, you are taking your meds, and that means you have an undetectable viral load. So even if you came all over that straight guy's flogger or you came into that straight guy, your chances of infecting him would be zero, undetectable is uninfectious. There are no cases of somebody using a sex toy, drawing blood, blood getting on the sex toy, that sex toy being used on someone else. There is no evidence out there, none, and certainly no cases where one person has used an impact play toy like a flogger on a pause person and then turned around and used it on someone else and infected them with it. It can't happen. It won't happen. Even if he drew blood, even if you bled all over his floggers, he can disinfect them. He can leave them alone for a day. And your pause blood, which if you're undetectable, uninfectious, has no viral load of any significance in it, isn't going to infect anybody. So, yeah, sounds like you walked into the wrong pansexual play party. Sounds like you walked into a pansexual play party with a lot of paranoid, homophobic, perhaps, definitely posphobic, misinformed, straight people who don't know what they're fucking talking about. I would encourage you, instead of worrying about your reputation in this misinformed community of idiots, to go find yourself a play party full of kinky gay men who know their holes from asses in the ground and aren't going to shame you for being paws or shit their pants over bullshit non-issues like infecting someone with a dirty flogger. As to whether you should have to disclose that your paws at a play party crowded with people, I don't think you should have to. You might want to, to avoid interactions like this one with misinformed, paranoid idiots. It might be to your advantage to disclose, but you're certainly not obligated to disclose at a play party where you're just doing BDSM and not doing sex. 
Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a cis woman in her early 30s calling from the American Southwest. My question is about erections. I was in a long-term relationship with a man who totally spoiled me with his amazing cock. He was a great size, and when he was totally hard, he was rock solid, and sex always felt amazing. Since we broke up, I've dated a couple guys. The first one, although he was a nice size, never got totally hard, and that was, I'm sorry to say, really frustrating for me because, like I said, I was very spoiled by my ex. I wondered what was going on with this new guy. We had great chemistry. We were very relaxed, open, and playful with each other in bed, so I didn't think it was a lack of anxiety or lack of arousal, but sometimes I really couldn't feel much of anything during sex, and sometimes his cock would even fall out of me, and the guy I'm currently dating seems to have the same issue. Nice size, doesn't get completely hard. We haven't had sex yet, but I'm already feeling disappointed that I won't get that nice, hard cock experience I'm looking for. (laughs) It just really does not feel very enjoyable to have a semi-hard dick inside me. So my question is twofold. One, is this actually way more common with guys than I know? I've only ever slept with a handful of men in my life, and my first two partners were able to sustain a very hard erection. So was I just spoiled by these partners? And two, how can I talk to my current partner and any other future partners I may have about this issue? I love being able to feel a man inside me, and I imagine it would feel better for him too if he were more erect. But I feel so nervous talking to a man about his ability to get hard. Surely, if I notice, he notices, and maybe he doesn't feel too great about it. So it feels like a really touchy subject. But like I said, maybe this is actually how most men are, and my expectations were set too high by my first two boyfriends. I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you're not getting the dick you want from the guy you're with, you can move on to the next guy. The conversation that you're thinking about having, how come you're not so hard? I don't like it when it's not so hard. Can you get harder? My previous two boyfriends could get rock fucking hard, and I could really feel them inside me, and they didn't fall out. That's kind of an ego-shredding conversation. And some guys who have large dicks, never get steel hard. They never get that hard because there ain't enough blood in them to push into all that bonus erectile tissue and rock hard that shit. Other guys have ED problems, would benefit from taking one of the drugs that are available to address erectile dysfunction, also might benefit from the wearing of a cock ring. And it's also possible that these guys might be having sex with you that isn't the sex that they necessarily enjoy most, the kind of sex that makes them rock fucking hard. They may be going through the motions of vanilla intercourse and trying to play the loop in their head that turns them on and incorporating some of what turns them on most. And it can be as simple as the dude likes to have his nipples played with when he's fucking might get him there, might help him get the rock hard erection that you would like him to have and would like to be impaled upon. So maybe before you give up on the guy you're with right now, the guy you're dating right now, have a conversation that Bankshot addresses this. What really turns you on? Have a lay your kink cards on the table kind of conversation. If there are some fantasies that you have that you've never gotten to explore, some things you did with previous partners that you really loved, put that out there and invite him to lay those cards on the table and invite him to lay his cards on the table too. You might find out that what really gets him rock fucking hard is a particular kind of dirty talk, a particular kind of stimulation, maybe a finger in his butt, maybe a butt plug, maybe having his nipples played with. And you might, if you have that convo with him, get the dick out of him and into you that you'd like to get. 
Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 34-year-old, cisgendered, heterosexual-ish female, and I've been in a relationship with my fiancé for five years. We've been planning on getting married next year, and one thing that has been a source of contention in our relationship, which is otherwise very good, is that he does not believe in the concept of an emotional affair. This has manifested itself a couple years ago when I caught him texting a coworker about 200 times a day. And then again, a few months later with the same, t- same coworker, uh, he continued to text her after promising me that he would not. He essentially feels that I was reading too much into a fun, flirty office friendship. However, I was horrified and betrayed. I know from this brief description, he sounds like a total sleazebag, but it seems to be a blind spot in what is otherwise a very uh, caring and thoughtful person. When I mention the phrase emotional affair or when it comes up in pop culture or casual conversational context, he is almost angry or vehement in his upfront, unsolicited denial of the existence of the concept of an emotional affair. I know that this sounds either like he's a horrible person or that I am completely overreacting or possibly both. So before I have another conversation with him about this, I wondered if you had any advice about how to move forward in this conversation when he is so defensive about it. And it has been a little bit of a previous issue in our relationship. So I'm also pretty insecure when I talk about it because it does bring up the old feelings of discovering him spending way too much time, thought, and energy on his hot female coworker. We are a bitterly divided Senate here at the Savage Lovecast. We are all over the place. On your question, you know, on the one hand, he engaged in this emotional affair with his coworker, and that wasn't okay because it was a distraction, because it made you feel insecure, and that's understandable. A fun, flirty office friendship that results in someone swapping 200 text messages a day with a person they work with, that can grow into a messy, complicated affair that destroys a relationship or ends a marriage or breaks up some children's home. Yeah, that can be problematic. I think it's fine to get your flirt on a little bit. Probably not a good idea at work, but to get your flirt on a little bit, soak up a little bit of erotic energy, soak up a little bit of affirmation because someone who isn't obligated to tell you that they find you attractive is telling you that you are attractive and then to take that home and plow that erotic energy into your partner. But you want to be discreet and you don't want to get your flirt on a little bit in such a way that takes time or emotional energy away from your partner or leaves your partner feeling insecure or devastated. That's where it crosses over into that emotional affair zone. And I do think emotional affairs are a thing. Your potential future husband does not think they are a thing. And maybe this otherwise caring, thoughtful person refuses to concede that point and is so vehement when the subject comes up in pop culture, other friends raise it because he has a guilty conscience. Or maybe just doesn't think they're a thing or doesn't think it should be a problem because he never touched that person with his penis. He only sent her photos, perhaps, when they were swapping all those text messages. My question for you, though, is if he's never willing to concede this point, what then? 
are you going to go tell him you're not going to marry him if he doesn't come around? If he doesn't tell you, yes, emotional affairs are a thing. Yes, emotional affairs are bad. And I'm never going to do it again. Sounds like he knocked it off. Sounds like he knows that it would piss his fiance off and really fuck up his relationship if he were ever to do this again. You say this was years ago, those 200 text messages a day, and then you insisted he put a stop to it, and then he did, and then he didn't, and then he had to be told twice, and then he stopped. So my question for you is, why do you want to address this issue? He's not doing it anymore. He's just guilty now of a thought crime. He thinks he should be able to do it. And maybe you want to force a conversation and extract a concession from him so that in future you will feel more secure in this relationship because he now agrees with you that emotional affairs are a thing and a problem. But if you go in there and say, I'm not going to marry you unless you tow my line on emotional affairs, you'll get an insincere concession out of him. He'll tell you that, yes, dear, that's a problem. No, dear, I'll never do that again. And he won't mean it. So this seems to me the kind of unresolvable issue that when it comes up, when somebody says emotional affair and he goes off, you roll your eyes and leave the room and refill your wine glass. As opposed to really forcing the issue and demanding that your partner agree with you about this. Because he doesn't agree with you about this. And he's unlikely to ever agree with you about this. He has agreed not to do this. And perhaps he feels aggrieved about that concession. Perhaps he wishes he could still do this. Perhaps he has a burner phone and does still do this. Question for you is, are you willing to marry a guy who's had an emotional affair in the past and is highly likely to have another one again at some point in the future considering that this is how he feels? And if the answer is no, then don't marry this guy. Because all you're going to get if you go in there and press this issue is an argument and perhaps an, an insincere concession. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yes, emotional affairs are a thing and a problem and I'll never do it again. Blah. That's probably what you'll get. Will that satisfy you? Will that make you feel more secure, more comfortable? Probably not, I'm guessing. And you'll be back where you are now. You'll be with this guy. Your otherwise caring and thoughtful fiancé. Like I said, a bitterly divided Senate here at Savage Lovecast Industries. I'll get the last word because actually we're not a democracy and we don't have a Senate. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle feel that he never really apologized and doesn't think this is wrong and therefore is highly likely to do this again. And he's highly likely to have an emotional affair, highly likely to have an actual touching somebody else with the tip of his penis style affair. And you should take that all into consideration before you marry this guy. Nancy suggested that you run out and have an emotional affair of your own so you can see what it feels like and know why it is a problem. I'm not into that kind of tit for tat retaliatory shit because it tends to escalate. Then you'll both be fucking and eventually married to other people, which again, might be the solution. Anyway, last word to me, if he has knocked it off, if he agrees that this isn't something that he can do because he's with you and this is a problem for you and he's willing to not do this, that's the price of admission he's willing to pay to be with you. That is a yes you could potentially take for an answer. Requiring him to agree with you about something he fundamentally disagrees with you about for whatever reason you're not going to get what you want. You're not going to get sincere contrition. You're not going to get an epiphany out of him because you can't shove an epiphany into someone. Epiphanies ain't butt plugs. Hi, Van. Cis female, uh, hetero mostly. I am calling with a question. Long time listener, I guess I should say, and reader like for like a decade. I've never called. 
Um, I call now in search of advice about changing sexual fantasies. It's not super important causality, I guess, but uh, I'm the victim of sexual abuse, you know, from childhood, um, again, as a teenager and in and in a relationship I was in for nearly a decade as well. Not super important that that's the cause, but I, like many women, have very strong rape-centric fantasies, which for most of my life, I've been able to compartmentalize the that, that fantasy part of my brain with the fact that that's not what I want in real life. In the context of the Brett Kavanaugh stuff and women not being believed and dealing with my own sexual trauma, I find um, every time it comes up recently, I have so much anxiety that it's it's hard to focus, it's hard to breathe. As that has been happening more and more over the last couple of years, you know, the, the porn I've started looking at, you know, I started with like anime, so it's not real people when I'm watching sort of rapey porn. I try not to shame myself for having that fantasy, and I guess I, I don't feel ashamed of it, but I also don't want it either. I'm finding it being difficult to morally reconcile this this thing that I'm fantasizing about and this thing that I'm processing trauma as a result of um, and how both can exist at the same time. And I know we sort of have our sexual attraction runs deep and it's hard to change, but I'm just wondering if you have any advice or any strategies about shifting the thing that is literally the quickest to get me to orgasm when I'm watching porn away from that quickest thing. I just, I don't want to fantasize about that anymore. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Justin Lay Miller is a social psychologist, research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, author of the blog Sex and Psychology, and his latest book is Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Welcome back to the Lovecast. Dr. Justin, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, Dan. So you cover rape fantasies in Tell Me What You Want. Yes. Uh, so in... in this book, I surveyed more than 4,000 Americans about their sexual fantasies, and I found that uh, forced sex fantasies were extraordinarily common. In fact, about two-thirds of the women I surveyed uh, reported having fantasies of this nature before, and more than half of the men did as well. So it seems to be a very common thing for people to get off on the idea of having sex forced on them in some way. You use the, the term forced sex. I've also heard ravishment fantasies, because a rape fantasy is a fantasy about being taken against your will by someone that you would like to take you against your will, which is not rape. Right. And and a lot of the people who took my survey use the term rape fantasy, but I, I tend not to like that term because when you're fantasizing about having sex forced on you, it's you're ultimately in control of that situation in terms of who the other person is, the terms under which this takes place and the boundaries and so forth. So it really bears no resemblance to uh, a real world sexual assault. And talking about rape fantasies may put it in some very deeply demented people's heads that might not be so bad to rape someone if rape fantasies are as, as ubiquitous as they seem to be. It might be not a problem, but of course it is a problem because somebody who wants to enact a forced sex fantasy or a ravishment fantasy, they're going to choose the person that they wish to experience that with. Right. And and I also think that the use of the term rape fantasy for the individual who has that fantasy, uh, that might contribute to some feelings of guilt about it. And I think that's especially true in the Me Too era. For sex fantasies, 
may create a lot of guilt for people uh, in the sense that people may fantasize about having sex forced on them, but at the same time, they are supporters of the Me Too movement. And so they may feel as though they're, they're traitors to the cause in some way. Uh, and I think that's where it's really important to get back to that distinction between forced sex fantasies versus the reality of sexual assault. And those are two completely different things. And you can enjoy your fantasy uh, without being a hypocrite or a traitor to the cause. And we don't seem to have any problem when it comes to enjoying the fantasy without approving of the thing that's being fantasized about or imagined. Uh, when it comes to fiction, when it comes to television shows, I just watched Ozark, a whole bunch of people get murdered. When it comes to watching little kids play mm-hmm. cops and robbers, we don't think they're normalizing uh Theft. That's, of course, the president's job. Is it a sex negative kind of impulse that once we stir in sexual desire, orgasms, that our fantasy life, these scenarios that we don't wish to experience in real life or wouldn't wish on anyone in real life, for instance, the things that people suffer in Ozark, we wouldn't wish that on anyone in real life, become a problem or we feel guilty about them once we stir in desire and sex and orgasms? Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. Anytime you add sex to it, it becomes even more taboo because of uh, all of the hangups that we already have about sex in the first place. And so when you you start talking about sex and then it's sort of in the context of or there's this terminology of of sexual assault around it, uh, that I think creates a, a, a psychological conflict for a lot of people. Zooming out for one more second before we get to the caller specific concerns. Where do our fantasies and kinks come from? A lot of people ask me about that. They really wrestle with this. People who don't mm-hmm. have a kink, who you know are pretty vanilla, whose partner uh, lays their kink cards on the table, will judge and shame their partner because they think there's some conscious choice there. And that's just absolutely not the case. People don't choose their kinks any more than they choose their sexual orientations. Right. And that's very true. And what I find in my research and in the broader literature on sexual fantasies is that our fantasies have very diverse origins. Um, when you're talking specifically about forced sex fantasies, one of the factors that predicts having them is just having a more active imagination and being more open to new experiences and, and trying new things. So we see that the people who fantasize the most have the most diversity and variability in their sexual content. So sometimes our fantasies are just a sign of the fact that we just we think a lot. Um, but when it comes to four sex fantasies, there is a small link for some people uh, to previous experiences that they've had uh, with, with sexual assault. And this may be a way that people try to cope with um, the experience that they had. Uh, our, our fantasies, like I said, have these very complex origins and can come from a lot of different places. So not everybody who has four sex fantasies has them for the same reason. I often... My feeling and observation has long been that a lot of our fantasies and desires are rooted in fears. It's, you know, people mm-hmm. fear being cheated on. They fear infidelity. Not everyone winds up with a cuckold fetish, but some people do. Some people take those fears and anxieties and they kind of transubstantiate in our erotic imaginations into something pleasurable. It's still scary, but we find this way to really minimize it, control it. And, and enjoy it and, you know, sort of live out our worst fears, which is what, you know, we go to horror films to do, live out our worst fears. And, but that's not always the case. It's not always rooted in fear. Right. And and there's something else that's interesting there too, when you're talking about fear that, that I, was, I was thinking of, which is how, when we're thinking about something that's already very 
physiologically arousing in the first place. So if, if it's an experience that might cause a little bit of fear, that creates this heightened state of arousal. And we know from a mountain of research in social psychology that when people are already in a heightened state of arousal, that it's very easy for those feelings to get transferred into sexual arousal. Uh, so, so that might be part of what contributes uh, in uh, the case of the fear fantasies that you were talking about. One of the things that I've said to a lot of people who have a, a fantasy that troubles them, people who've experienced sexual assault or trauma, who then have forced sex fantasies. One of the things I sometimes tell them to comfort them is that there are lots of people out there who didn't experience sexual trauma or assault, but who mm -hmm. have forced sex fantasies. Is there always a, a causal link there? If somebody experienced sexual trauma, has forced sex fantasies, can it just be a correlation? Because it, Can it just be random? Or is there always a link? Uh, no. And in fact, the link to previous sexual victimization uh, is actually very small. So the vast majority of people who fantasize about forced sex don't have a history of sexual assault. I think where a lot of these fantasies come from is that they're really more an extension of a broader interest in BDSM and domination and submission. And it, it tends to take the form of this forced sex fantasy where, um, you know, sex is in a way being forced on you, but you're providing some level of token resistance. That's the most common form that these fantasies take. And it had nothing to do with sexual violence as a history in that case. I always think of spanking. So many people will say, I'm into spanking because I was spanked as a child. And then you meet just as many people who say, I was, I'm into spanking because I wasn't spanked as a child. And I was sort of morbidly fascinated and it became my king. <laughs> right. You know, people with kinks often want to look back over their lives or people who are with people with kinks will want to look back over their childhoods and find the thing that created this problem. And if you don't regard it as a problem, you're not going to necessarily have to spend waste time really looking for the cause. Right. That, that's absolutely true. And, and I think oftentimes we're doing exactly what you're saying is that we're looking back, trying to find our own explanation. But the one that comes to mind, the easiest might not be uh, the most accurate explanation. So to the caller specific concerns, she once was able to enjoy these fantasies and successfully compartmentalize them, which is a word that I've thrown at people who have fantasies that trouble them. You know, there was a gay guy who wrote into my column who was very much into homophobic porn, into kind of gay basher porn. And there's a lot of that out there, particularly on Tumblr. And my advice to him was you have to build a firewall between your psyche and your fantasy. And that's possible to do. Um, and the caller did that and was able to do that successfully for a long time. But in the wake of the Me Too movement and Dr. Ford and all of the women who stepped forward to tell their stories of sexual victimization and trauma, that firewall has collapsed and she's no longer able to compartmentalize in the way that she used to. And her question is, can she learn to fantasize about something else? She can obviously fantasize about other things because she describes this as her go-to. And this is the one that most successfully mm -hmm. gets her there and gets her off. But she's no longer comfortable going there. Can she learn to go elsewhere? Can you eradicate a fantasy? Well, it's possible to learn new sexual desires, to, to develop new fantasies. And I see this in my own research, is that our fantasies change as we age, and people seem to develop new fantasies all the time. So it is absolutely possible to develop new sexual fantasies. In terms of overwriting previous 
sexual fantasies and desires, that becomes more difficult and challenging. Um, and we know this from uh, a lot of research uh, in the sex therapy literature where they've tried to eradicate uh, very dangerous desires where, where there is truly a non-consensual element. For example, mm-hmm. when people are fantasizing about spying on other people uh, or, or flashing themselves to strangers or, or, or something along those lines. Um, you know, in, in terms of trying to get rid of those desires, it is very challenging. The, the good news is that it seems to be possible to learn new desires. Um, I, I think, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't start by saying, you know, when you have concerns like this about any sexual fantasy and it starts to become really personally distressing, like, a, a good first step would be to talk to a counselor or therapist. Um, you know, they can give you the best uh, advice in terms of dealing with this for your individual circumstances. But, um, you know, the other part is really understanding the difference between your fantasy and the reality of sexual assault and that it's okay to have these fantasies, um, but also to, to recognize that you can learn new desires. And one way that that sex therapists sometimes accomplish this with clients is to engage in something called orgasmic reconditioning, where basically they instruct the client to fantasize about what it is that turns them on to the brink of orgasm and then fantasize about something else that is more acceptable to them. Uh, And then as they repeatedly do this, they sort of introduce that socially acceptable fantasy earlier and earlier. And the idea is that you're just sort of building on principles of psychological reinforcement to create a new fantasy that is more acceptable to the client. Does that work? I'm, I'm kind of incredulous. I, I can't imagine that actually working. You fantasize with the thing that turns you on most in the last moment you think about a rose petal spread on the bed and a middle, million tiny tea candles alight in the room. Does that work? It, it can work. It doesn't work for everyone. And, you know, there are mixed success rates with it. Um, But it is a technique that some sex therapists use. And it's rooted in principles of psychological reinforcement. We know, for example, that you can condition kinks into participants in a lab setting. So, you know, you can learn new sexual fantasies um, just by using those principles. My my advice to to people who are uncomfortable with their sort of go-to main sexual fantasy is to make the photocopy of the photocopy of the photocopy of the photocopy find something that taps into the dominance or submission or the power of the fantasy that is to the left of it uh, to a significant degree. But so you get at the root of sort of the, the, the power dynamics or whatever it might be that turns you on the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. nut of this thing, you can find that power imbalance, that Dom sub stuff, that force in other fantasy scenarios that may not be as troubling. Absolutely. And, you know, as I was saying, I think that for sex fantasies often stem from a broader interest in BDSM and BDSM can take so many different forms that it's likely that you could find something else that would fulfill that desire for for dominant submission without giving you the same sort of qualms about it. In the other side of desire, Daniel Bergner writes about a foot fetishist who was so wrapped up with shame that he saw a therapist and went on antidepressants to basically decrease his libido. And in the end, it, it didn't work. And he was still so paralyzed and racked by shame that the, the person uh, Bergner was following and profiling committed suicide because mm-hmm. of, he was into feet and was so conflicted about being into feet. And I just sometimes think that, that, that harm is done when we tell people, that we can eradicate that fantasy. It's almost like telling somebody you can become not gay, ex-gay, that you can 
become straight and right. and you just fucking can't your fantasies are really deep and, and kind of hardwired and you have to find a way to work with them and i think you can channel them that's what i would encourage the caller to do find a way to channel this in a direction where you're going to be more comfortable with the scenario that plays out in your head or the porn that you watch but you're gonna have to find something that still taps into that 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 well of of the, the design you know bdsm variations basically as, as you recommended Right. And I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that in terms of thinking about how can I take this fantasy in a different, slightly different direction? And, and could that still fulfill the desire while um, making you more comfortable? Um, it, another thing is just sort of re- reducing, relieving the shame and guilt and embarrassment that we have with our sexual fantasies. Um, people can have very vanilla fantasies yet feel extremely guilty about them. Um, so, so this is not something that is unique to to. to to for sex fantasies or to, to the foot fetish fantasy scenario that you mentioned, but people can feel guilt uh, about any number of, of different fantasies. And I think relieving that guilt is a really important first step uh, in terms of coming to terms with one's desires and then figuring out uh, healthy ways to express them. And maybe the first move for the caller is to relabel these fantasies, forced sex fantasies, and to leave the R word aside. Right. And I think that's great advice. Well, it's your advice. That's why it's so great. Dr. (laughs) Justin Lay Miller, social psychologist, research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. His new book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life is out now. And it is a terrific read. And I recommend it. Thank you, Dr. Lay Miller, for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Anytime, Dan. Hi, Dan. Uh, First, a quick thank you. I have a rare fetish that isn't relevant to what I'm going to ask today. Suffice it to say that I hadn't realized that there were more weirdos like me out there until you addressed the fetish in an episode some 15 years ago. Thank you for that. Um, Encouraged in part by that episode and by ending a long-term relationship with a shaming sex-negative boyfriend, I started laying my king card on the table much earlier, which eventually led me to my wonderful husband. Um, My husband goes beyond simply satisfying to enjoying my fetish to the point that we joke that he's now developed it vicariously as he associates the trigger so strongly with our sex life. I've always wanted to reciprocate, but my husband has always claimed that he doesn't have any fetishes or fantasies until now. Here's where the question comes in. I am in early pregnancy, and my husband recently confessed that he's becoming increasingly obsessed with the idea of me wearing a strap-on beneath my baby bump and pegging him. He mentioned it casually, and I responded equally casually that it could be a hot idea, thinking this was abstract, dirty talk. It was only when he then jumped up to fetch the already purchased harness and a sort of large purple silicon cock that I realized this wasn't a hypothetical exercise. Caught unaware, I sort of panicked. To his credit, he hasn't pressured me or even mentioned it since. I think he feels guilty because he knows that butt stuff isn't my thing. I've made it clear from day one that penetration of my own ass is not on the table. And much like one of your recent callers, they will definitely be able to write, she never ate ass on my grave. That said, after some consideration, I've decided that this particular angle is something that I'd be willing to try particularly given how exciting my, the idea seems to be to my husband. But I don't know where to begin. I don't know the first thing about insertion or anything about a butt or about how to wear or act while wearing a dildo, much less actually enjoy the experience. And the more I wait, the more nervous I become. It's made worse by the significant size difference between my husband and myself. I would imagine that pegging would usually involve doggy-style action, but if we do that, there's no doubt that the heights of our crotches will make that difficult. Can you give me any advice to overcome my pegging fears and embarrassment and help me repay my husband for all the pleasure he has given me over the years? Thanks. So this kink of yours, whatever it might be, that your husband now takes this pleasure in because of all the pleasure 
it provides you so much so that it's kind of his kink now too. That process could unfold here in reverse with you slamming a big fat purple dildo in and out of your husband's ass that you've strapped to your body below your baby bump. How you get there though is baby steps. I would recommend that you and the husband get your hands on a copy of Jack Morin's Anal Pleasure and Health. It's a good starting point. Also a lot of good tips in there about cleaning out. A lot of people have issues with ass play or ass sex or butt sex or pegging or whatever or toys or fingers or rimming have these fears about omnipresent poop and poop isn't omnipresent. If you clean out, there should be no poop. That's why Santorum, the frothy mix of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex is only the byproduct of anal sex sometimes because if you're doing it right, no Santorum because no fecal matter, no fecal matter, no Santorum. That's how it works. If you want some tips right off the top of my head, if you're nervous about fucking him and being behind him with a strap-on dildo sliding in and out of your ass, you're going to get a read on that. You're going to get a clock on that. You're going to see that maybe in ways that right now you're not ready to see it. But there are ass play baby steps, JV ass play things you can do that can get you there. Set the dildos aside. Set the strap-on aside. Get a few butt plugs. Get a few butt toys that you can insert and then revert to the other things that you two enjoy doing together sexually. You can slide a butt plug into his ass and then you guys can have PIV intercourse or oral sex or whatever else. He's being anally penetrated on remote control, on autopilot at that point, and you don't have to continue to engage with his ass. You can forget about his ass and enjoy the other things that you enjoy. There's just that interaction with his ass at the beginning of the session where you're doing the insertion. Then you can build up to pegging, which is just inserting and inserting and inserting and inserting without ever fully removing the toy. Uh, positions you can work out. You can prop somebody's hips up with pillows and get them to the height that works for you as you're kneeling behind them in the doggy position. There may be an ottoman or a chair in your house that if your husband gets on his knees and bends over, he can angle his ass back in such a way that you can reach him comfortably even though you're much shorter than he is, there's also the option, perhaps not now, not while you're pregnant, of strapping on and him straddling you while you lay down on your back and fucking himself to his heart's content. And then you actually won't get a read on it. You won't be able to look down and see the sliding in and out. He will be making that happen for himself. And another option for pegging beginners, once you get past the butt plug stage, get a few dildos that he can penetrate himself with during sex or during sex play. You can lay with him in bed, he can go to town on his own butt, at his own pace, and you can then assess how deep, how fast, how much he can take based on how much he's given himself. You can get there. You kind of do owe him. Whatever that kink was that you don't mention, your kink, his kink, blah, blah, blah. We'll talk about that. Your kink that you don't mention, he got there for you. He stepped outside his comfort zone and your kink became his kink because he was so tapped into your pleasure. That can happen this way too. That can happen in reverse. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight white woman in my early 20s living in Brooklyn. And I had a question for you about on and porn kind of kinks that have to do with brothers and sisters, stepbrothers and stepsisters and what you thought about them. My whole life, historically, I've been kind of 
vanilla when it comes to my sex life. I don't really have many kinks. And I think in the past, I've been a little bit judgmental of, you know, the sort of like rape fantasy kinks or baby baby diaper kinks. But I think listening to your podcast has really opened up my mind to, you know, that these are kinks and it doesn't mean that this is who this person is. You know, like what they do in the bedroom is not is not who they are as a person. But when it comes to, you know, this sort of category in porn that's like, oh, I'm having sex with my brother or my sister, I just can't get over that. And I it's really disturbing to me. And I was just wondering what your thoughts on it were. Is it just me again being kind of, you know, kind of um jaded or or is it something that's kind of kind of weird? I just would love to hear your take on it. Two quick points. Often what someone does in the bedroom not just isn't who they are as a person. It's the opposite of who they are as a person. And I've rattled off these examples so many times that I'm sure people can rattle them off with me. The right on feminist woman who wants to be spanked and have her hair pulled and called a slut while she's having sex with someone who she gave permission to do those sorts of things with her. And it's consensual and empowering. The out and proud gay dude who wants to be called a faggot and degraded while he's being fucked. But that's his choice and he enjoys it. And, and that isn't who he is. He isn't some worthless faggot, but kind of turns him on to be treated that way during sex by someone he would like to be treated that way by. It is the opposite of who he is. And he's kind of wallowing in his opposite. And when you wallow in the person you're not, it's what Halloween is for. It's what fashion in Germany is for. Carnival is for. All sorts of festivals, Mardi Gras, are built in where we can just be the opposite of who we are. It Then when we return to ourselves, makes us feel more holy ourselves or for people who have that kind of dynamic in their erotic imagination and their erotic life. The second point I want to make Incest porn really disturbs you. You can't get over it. My thoughts, why are you spending so much time thinking about incest porn? I'm not insinuating that on some level it must really turn you on, but it bothers you, incest porn. So to paraphrase the late Barbara Bush, why are you wasting your beautiful mind on something like that? Stop thinking about it. Yeah, incest porn, when I contemplate it, it squicks me out. I understand that a lot of people into incest porn or into the taboo violation, that they're not attracted to their actual family members, that it is a kind of abstraction for most people who are into that kind of porn. But it just squeaks me out. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it unless it comes up on the show or in the letters and then I have to think about it. So I am thinking about incest porn right now because you're thinking about incest porn and you called me and now you made me think about it. And I don't like thinking about it any more than you do, which is why I'm asking you why you are thinking about it. Think about other things. You have a beautiful mind. Think about the shit that turns you on. Don't waste your beautiful mind on the shit that squicks you out. Hi, I'm calling in regards to the woman with the issue of her barking dog when she's having sex or the playful dog. I know this issue very well. Um, Our dog would love to be snuggling with us or barking at us or humping us while we're having sex. My husband and I are having sex. Um, We can't leave him outside of the room barking because we've got kids. So we have invested in a variety of different Kongs and other dog toys that you stuff with yummy treats. Um, Our dog happens to love cream cheese. So I fill up a Kong earlier in the day, 
freeze it. I have like a stash of them. So when it's time for sex, we just pull those out and the dog is totally happy with the Kongs and eating his treats. And filling up those Kongs earlier in the day, it's kind of like a little, I don't know, a little foreplay type thing. You get to think about what this is for. But anyway, that's the way we've handled the situation. And we've been doing that for about three years now. Works like a charm. All right. You asked for it. So here I am certified canine behaviorist and trainer for over 15 years. <sighs> People, create, train, and discipline your fucking dogs. Do not drink the Kool-Aid of the cookies and hugs cult. It doesn't work. Dogs need structure and discipline. For all of you with dog questions or dog problems, get your dogs to a trainer that uses positive and negative reinforcements. You will have a happier, mentally balanced dog. Hey, I'm actually calling um, with a comment about episode 625, the couple with the contractor that said the super inappropriate joke. And um, everything Dan said was spot on and perfect. I would just add potentially that um, that couple should look for a female um, contractor. And they're out there. My wife is a contractor um, and she has a great rapport with her clients. She can. She has a lewd sense of humor, but knows when to use it. So yeah, I would recommend looking into a female contractor. They're out there, and it's great to support women-owned businesses. Dan, calling in about six twenty-five, and the guy who watched a contractor disrespect his wife, bro. What the fuck? You have some serious shit to deal with right now. Not only does your wife feel unsafe in her own home. But there is no fucking way this episode didn't negatively impact her level of attraction to you. Even if we take gender roles and patriarchal prescriptions out of the equation, you're still a teammate. And something about the way you carry yourself made this guy feel comfortable fucking disrespecting your teammate in front of you. Even if you wanted to go with the humor route, acutely, the proper response would have been, if anyone's getting dressed up in red spandex and spanked, it's going to be you as you look this fuck face in the eye right before you fire him. And now you've got some serious recovery to do. Not only do you need to fire this fucking douche, you need to do so in a way that restores some of your wife's faith in you. Time to nut up, son. The walls are the door and you fucking shit the bed on this one. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Tickets are going fast for the opening of the 14th annual Hump Film Festival with all new short porn, comedy, animation, fun films that audiences at the premiere screenings will get to vote on to award huge cash prizes to the filmmakers, including the $10,000 Best in Show Award. You can check out the trailer and read the film descriptions at humpfilmfest.com and then get tickets for the premiere of the new Hump, the 14th Annual Hump in Seattle, Portland, Olympia, and new this year, San Francisco. The 14th Annual Hump Film Festival will tour the country in 2019. Find out when Hump is coming to a city near you at humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller. That's L E H M I L L E R. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.